And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over. Perhaps the first, and certainly the most enduring suspect in the murder of Sarah McDermott is Jodie Ann Jones. There is no doubt that Jodie Jones was a violent offender. She had just been released from prison for manslaughter, she was a drug addict, she was self-destructive, and she also had a reputation where it suited her to have others think she could have killed Sarah. If people were scared of her, their fear became her power. Two key witnesses were Queenie and her daughter Prue. Jodie had turned up on their doorstep on Friday the 13th of July, two days after Sarah disappeared, and claimed to have been involved in her murder with two other blokes. So the reason Jodie Jones emerged so quickly as a suspect was because she went around telling everyone that she killed Sarah McDermott. In this episode, Vicky Petratus looks at the case against Jodie Jones. Before I began researching this case in detail, the only thing I'd heard about Jodie Jones was that she was a street kid who had jumped on a man's chest at Luna Park and killed him. Given the statistics about violence against women, it's easy to assume that when a girl jumps on a man's chest, he might have hurt her first. It wasn't until my friend Tara at the public records office helped me locate a copy of the inquest documents for the man Jodie Jones killed, that a very different picture emerged. According to these documents, Jodie was not a girl set upon defending herself. Quite the opposite, in fact. Victim James Halkett may or may not have insulted Jodie first, but she definitely started the fight, attacking him, pushing him and shoving him, until her three friends joined in and together they all beat him to death. They left James Halkett lying in the car park, then went into a nearby toilet so Jodie could wash the blood off her legs. So given she'd done this seven years earlier, was Jodie the kind of offender police were looking for? Someone who would brutally attack a victim with little or no motive? Yes, someone who would move a victim with her belongings afterwards. Well, she didn't do that with James Halkett, but maybe if she thought the victim might lead the police to her, she might have moved her. Was she someone who could move and conceal Sarah so effectively she was never found? Did she know the area that well? Was she someone who could access a vehicle to take Sarah away? 
Friends spent a lot of time driving Jodie around. It's in nearly all their statements. She didn't have her own car, and there's nothing to indicate she even knew how to drive. So, did Jodie fit the type? I think we've all seen enough profiling movies and watched seasons of Criminal Minds that we are tempted to profile offenders ourselves. But in the real world, it doesn't quite work that way. I spoke to Detective Laurie Ratz about this. What kind of offender does that in your mind as a detective? Who are you looking for? I I don't think I thought too much about what sort of person would do this. It was more about, in those early stages, about finding as much as we could, understanding that immediate crime scene, getting the searching going, getting the detectives talking to witnesses, finding witnesses, all of those things happen at once. So you've got about at least half a dozen balls that you're juggling at once. As well as that, you've got Mr and Mrs McDermott and their son Alistair, you've got to look after them, you've got to start getting statements from them, you've got to try and work out if there's any more to this than meets the eye, like maybe Sarah did have a boyfriend or maybe another friend or maybe she'd been in in a relationship that had gone sour. All these things go through your mind, so you can't zero in on one thing and say, well, boy, maybe this is a serial killer or a, or, or a person who has targeted her specifically or was there a group of them? And, and then as the witness statements come together and you start to piece information, then, then we started to get information in relation to Jodie Jones. So when she first came to the attention of police, Jodie was a good suspect. Her friends had seen the case splashed all over the media and when Jodie began telling them she was responsible they started contacting the police. We've already heard how one of the first to speak was a woman called Queenie. Jodie had told her, days after Sarah went missing, that she had been at the station with a couple of guys and that they were responsible. Who the guys were was a mystery, but was Jodie telling the truth? Cole Clark was one of the team of detectives who immediately set about interviewing Jodie's friends to establish her whereabouts on the night Sarah vanished. Always as a crew, a team, you work together. Uh, When Jodie come up as a a fairly strong suspect and she confessed to other people that she'd done it, nearly all resources were put into Jodie because a lot of people needed to be spoken to and it had to be done quickly. Jeff and myself were on that crew talking to all these people too. The first thing detectives had to do was to find out Jodie's whereabouts on Wednesday the 11th of July, the night Sarah disappeared. Eight days after Sarah was taken, a woman called Margaret gave a statement to police. She told them that on the date Sarah was taken, Jodie had turned up on her doorstep in the afternoon at her house in Mentone. Margaret knew Jodie from Fairley Women's Prison That night, Margaret told police that she had driven Jodie up to a flat in Frankston where Jodie had said she'd been locked out of. No doubt this was the unit where Queenie lived and Jodie had been staying there. When they found no one at the unit, Margaret said she had visited her brother and sister-in-law in Hastings in the hope that when she and Jodie came back that way, Queenie would be home. Jodie could get her belongings and the $100 Queenie owed her. 
But on the return trip, there was still no one home at Queenie's place. So Margaret drove Jodie back to Mentone, where she stayed the night. If Margaret was correct about the dates and times, Jodie Jones was with her during the time Sarah McDermott was taken. The next day, according to Margaret, Jodie went with her to pick up her daughter to take her to a dentist appointment. The daughter wasn't there when Margaret and Jodie arrived. Jodie wanted to get pills, so Margaret agreed to take her to a local doctor in Cheltenham. They returned to Queenie's flat at lunchtime, but still no sign of Queenie. After that, Margaret drove Jodie into the city and dropped her off there. All up, Margaret made three statements. With each statement, she added things. She and Jodie drove to Lilydale and then to Ringwood to pick up some of Jodie's clothes. More about pills. The doctor wouldn't give Jodie any, but Margaret was able to get a packet of Serapax, which was the medication used to treat anxiety. Later that night, Jodie took the whole packet and then was violently ill. Margaret said that on the Saturday, which would have been the 14th of July, three days after Sarah disappeared, she had driven Jodie over to Northcote to another doctor in search of pills. The doctor's surgery was closed, so they returned to the doctor in Cheltenham for more pills. Saturday night, two friends, Marion and Juan, came around. They stayed the night. On Sunday, Margaret was keen to get rid of Jodie, worried that she would overdose and die at her house. She said she dropped Marion, Juan and Jodie off in Fitzroy. Juan would later tell police that in the time they spent together on the Saturday night, drinking beer and talking into the small hours, Jodie hadn't said a word about the girl who'd gone missing from the Cannonock railway station. He also wrote in his statement about the Sunday afternoon. They dropped us off at Fitzroy. Marion and I went up to a shop to get something to eat. Marion realised that Jodie had stolen her money because it was all gone out of her purse. It was about $300. She had picked up her cheque. Marion hadn't left the money anywhere. It was taken out of her purse. So it does make you wonder that if it was so easy to steal from friends on the days they cashed their unemployment checks, why Jodie would go to the trouble of mugging someone at a railway station. Homicide detective Charlie Bazina had worked Sarah's case from the beginning. He remembers interviewing Margaret and overall, he found her to be credible. Well, Margaret was a lot older. Margaret was very important to the investigation because she was offering an alibi that she was there. And, and, and from memory, she came across as quite credible. You know, the fact that she did have roots in, in having a daughter and a family. Jodie had nothing. So she had a lot more to lose by, you know, giving, if it were the case, giving Jodie a false alibi. But look, reflecting back, she impressed me as a credible witness. And then you, you know about how they come across. And the old adage is, if you're going to be a lawyer, you have to have a good memory. And she ne- never deviated or to a degree. Of course, everyone that Margaret mentioned needed to be spoken to. Then if those people mentioned others, 
Well, it was enough to keep a lot of detectives busy following up a lot of people. And Laurie Rance remembered they weren't always the easiest people to interview. All of her associates, I think every associate we could find of hers had been to jail. So she was rough, she was tough. And I would say that the majority of them would have been scared of what she might do had she any inkling that they were giving information about her. The woman I spoke to, who was one of her associates, and to be fair, she was they were hard people. Like All of them had been in jail, all of them had been at Fairley or at Pentridge. So you're not talking to private school kids here, you're talking to people that even they're young, they're in their, their 20s, but they've seen more in that 20 years than most of us see in a lifetime. Considering Margaret's statement effectively gave Jodie Jones an alibi for the night Sarah was taken, did it hold up? Well, some parts did and some parts didn't. Margaret remembered that Jodie came to her place on Wednesday the 11th of July because it was the day before her daughter's dental appointment and the failed pickup on the Thursday. Margaret's oldest daughter told police she did have a dental appointment on Thursday the 12th of July. In one of her statements, Margaret said that she and Jodie drove up to Queenie's place and when no one was home, she and Jodie visited her sister-in-law, Deb. But when Deb spoke to police, she told them that Margaret and Jodie had visited her on Thursday around 2pm, not the Wednesday, because Wednesday the 11th was her birthday and that was not the day the women came to visit. But the one thing Margaret never wavered from was that Jodie was with her on the Wednesday night, so therefore Jodie couldn't be responsible for Sarah. Margaret's younger daughter, who was almost eight, remembered Jodie arriving one night when she was watching Neighbours on TV. She remembers Jodie telling her mum that she had been at Cannonock Railway Station and that she had to walk past police to get back to Queenie's, but there was no one there. But these weren't the only police Jodie mentioned seeing. Margaret would later say, When Jodie came to my place on the Wednesday, she did mention to me that there were police in my street, but I didn't see them. I also spoke to my milk bar man in Balcombe Road, and he told me about the police in my street. So, did Jodie mention seeing police in Elizabeth Street and at the Cannonock station? Because if she saw police at Cannonock, and if the child is correct, could Jodie have been talking about the night after Sarah was taken, when there were police at the station? The girl said in her statement that the next day they went to the doctors in Cheltenham, but the doctor wouldn't see Jodie because she didn't have a Medicare card. The girl remembered going to Northcote and remembered Marion and Juan coming over to stay the night. So if the doctor saw Jodie on Saturday the 14th, if the girl was correct, could Jodie have arrived on the Friday night, which would have accounted for her mentioning passing police at Cannonook? Or was Margaret accurate when she talked about going twice to the doctors? Once on the Thursday, when the doctor had no record of seeing Jodie, 
and again on the Saturday when he did see her but couldn't let her leave with a prescription because she didn't have a Medicare card. Margaret was first interviewed on the 19th of July, only eight days after Sarah was taken. So she wasn't remembering back over weeks, just one week. Overall, Margaret struck Charlie Bazina as honest. She had given other young women a place to stay when they were released from jail. Charlie felt that's the kind of woman she was. I think that's probably the role Margaret took on as, as a mother figure. Took after these younger ones and, you know, they just gravitated to her. But the fact is she, you know, she wasn't that type of criminal to say, well, go and bugger off and I'm going to talk to you. She allowed us to speak to her. She gave us a story. She didn't have to talk to us. She just said, no, I don't want to talk to you. Leave my house. And we had to. But that wasn't the case at all. So that adds to it all as saying, well, how credible is this person? Eleven days after Sarah went missing, a man called Emidio gave a statement at the Homicide Squad. He had met Jodie Jones a month earlier at a friend's place and, like many before him, ended up with Jodie living at his house not long after. It took only four days for the two to argue and Emidio asked her to leave. On Sunday the 22nd of July, Jodie called him. She was staying at Parkville with youth worker brother Alex MacDonald, who had spoken to Jodie right after the murder of James Helcott back in 1983 and then given a character reference for her during her murder trial. Emilio picked her up. Here's what he would later tell police. These are his words, not his voice. At about 2.10pm... I picked her up from the parish in a car I rented and we went to Turak where we had a coffee and something to eat. I then booked us into a room at the Turak Private Hotel in Turak Road. We were booked into room 23. We went up into the room and I stayed for about an hour and a half. Jodie was upset and was crying non-stop. She just kept crying but wouldn't tell me what was wrong with her. I then left her in the room and came back at about 11.30pm. When I got back, she'd settled down a fair bit. I started speaking to her, and she told me that she was raped by two guys in Mentone that I didn't know, and that apparently the missing girl, Sarah, helped tie her to the bed. She didn't tell me where or when this happened, and she didn't really tell me how it happened, only that she was tied up to a bed and raped, and that she was going to get every one of them back. I then put down a newspaper article in front of her, about the girl Sarah, and she said, I was there that night, there were police everywhere, and I was pissed off. Later she told me that she'd waited next to Sarah's car for her to come, and then stabbed her and killed her. She also said that some guy, who had just done eight years, helped her bury the body. She wouldn't tell me who this guy was, but she had said that he'd gone into state, and that he'd rang her today and told her that there was to be no more contact between them. Jodie was very emotional when she was telling me all this. She was crying and talking about killing herself. She said that there was no way she would ever get caught because she was the only one who knew about it and the other guy was staunch. During the night, she also said other things. She said that she used to go to school with Sarah and that she used to stay at Sarah's house on the weekends. And she said that she felt really bad the other night 
when she saw Sarah's father on TV. Emilio's statement is incorrectly dated Monday the 22nd of July at 6.20am. Monday was the 23rd, but it sounds like he drove straight from the hotel to the homicide squad to make a statement. This version of the story about Sarah being involved in holding down Jody during a recent rape is not credible. Nor was the fact that Jody had gone to school with Sarah. Sarah had been educated in Townsville for a couple of years in primary school and then in Scotland until she finished her studies. As for sleepovers at the McDermott's, Jody herself wasn't available for sleepovers since she had spent the last seven years in jail and before that, the McDermott's weren't even in the country. Jody was interviewed on Monday the 23rd of July, so it would seem that after Emilio spoke to the detectives at the homicide squad, they went straight over and picked Jody up for questioning. Again, it seems like however worried she claimed to be about one or possibly two or three mystery men staying staunch, she herself told everyone and then they made a beeline to police. Cole Clark joined homicide detective Charlie Bazina for the interview. What was his impression of the young woman who had claimed to so many to be responsible for taking Sarah McDermott? Look, she was a screaming drug addict. She was a prostitute. She'd had a prior conviction for killing a man where she jumped during a fight and put a stiletto heel into his uh, chest. She'd done some time for that and she'd been released back in the community. She was still back on the, on the drugs in a big way and this, this information was coming from all the closest friends and people she was associated with. And all that information come in and the fact that she was confessing to other people that she'd done it. She, she'd um, later on told other people that she'd done it. But look, she was a hard ass and she was never going to confess to it to us on the interview, and as it was, she didn't. Uh, everything was put to her by Charlie in, in during the interview of all the statements that we'd obtained from people and what they'd said about her, and she just denied it. In the interview, Jody said she had been at Margaret's on Wednesday the 11th of July. She had met a musician a couple of days earlier and had come from his place in South Yarra by train. His statement would later support this. I don't have the recordings of the interview, just the transcript, but even when they're just words on a page, Jodie doesn't mince words as she skips neatly around any accusations. When Charlie Bazina and Cole Clark asked her if she had told Queenie that she had been involved in taking Sarah, Jodie denied it. Question. Why do you think she'd say that in her statement? Answer, she's dirty on me for some reason. Question, well, what would that reason be? Answer, because I threatened her for me money. Question, well, how did you threaten her? Answer, I threatened to belt her if she didn't come good with it. When the two detectives asked Jodie to explain why Emilio would say she told him she'd been raped, Jody said it was because he wanted to be in a relationship with her and she had refused. When they asked her what she'd said to Queenie, Jody said, 
All I said to her was, I'm in trouble, I need my money, because that's the only way I knew I could get it out of her. When Jodie was asked when she was at the Cannonock railway station, she said it was after Sarah had been taken. Question. When you got to the railway station, you said there were a number of policemen there. Is that right? Answer. Yeah, they're all searching the bushes and they had a caravan set up. Jodie claimed to have been at Cannonook on Thursday and that was the day she went to Queenie's house to ask for money. She said she'd caught the train there. But this contradicted Margaret's statement about driving Jodie to Queenie's place and then the visit to her sister-in-law. And Queenie hadn't said the Thursday, she said Jodie visited her on the Friday. And finally Jodie denied what she had told Emilio the night before. Question. In respect of what you've told him in relation to this rape and Sarah being involved, what do you say? That's all incorrect? Answer. It's bullshit. In some ways, Jodie Jones did look promising as a suspect, but for homicide detective Charlie Bazina, there were some anomalies in what they found at the crime scene. She looked a really good suspect. Our information was she'd actually made admissions to somebody else. And then she'd not long been out of jail for a manslaughter. I mean, she killed someone with a stiletto years prior to that, and she's in the area at the time. She's got associates in the area at the time. She's got the potential. She's drug-affected. And she she would have quite easily, even though she's very slim-built, but being drug-affected gives them the bravado just to attack and all this stuff. But have they got the nous or the inclination or the smarts or the clear-head thinkingness to do what we found at the crime scene? Basically nothing. You know, you would think if it was a drug fueled assault, but other motives to look at to say, well, was it motiv- what was it motivated for? If it was just a thrill kill, you'd find Sarah there. You'd find her bag strewn everywhere of just a thrill kill. Is it just a robbery to get cash from Sarah coming late off the train? She's got a bag, she's got cash, she's very well dressed, very well presented, but you'd find something. But then to go the extra stuff and take the body away. And so we worked on that for a long time. And another problem for the detectives interviewing the huge network of friends and associates of Jodie and Margaret and Queenie, of the many people Jodie spoke to about Sarah's disappearance, none of the stories were the same. A friend called Mario saw Jodie six days after the disappearance in Smith Street, Collingwood. They had coffee and Mario noticed a knife in Jodie's bag. When he asked her about it, she said, You know about that Frankston bullshit? Mario told her to get rid of the knife, and Jodie replied, No, I've got the knife there because I might be involved in the Frankston thing. And Emidio, who we discussed earlier, told police, Later she told me that she'd waited next to Sarah's car for her to come and then stabbed her and killed her. She also said that some guy who had just done eight years, helped her bury the body. She wouldn't tell me who this guy was, but she had said that he'd gone into state and that he'd rang her today and told her that there was to be no more contact between them. Jodie's bail was revoked in late July and she was sent back to prison. The next witnesses met up with her in jail. Anne was in prison with Jodie. She would later tell police. Jodie said she grabbed the girl and smashed her. 
She didn't tell me what she used as a weapon. Then she said they all threw the body in the boot and drove off. She told me they took the body to a beach somewhere. She told me they buried the body and it was near a caravan park. She didn't tell me what they got, if they took anything, and didn't tell me what the dead girl was wearing. She told me that the girl was still moaning in the back of the boot, so they pulled up somewhere before arriving at the beach, and Jodie finished her off by hitting her in the head. Her body was apparently still in the boot, and there was a lot of blood coming from her head. She didn't tell me anything else. But Anne's story didn't fit with the evidence, because Sarah wasn't loaded into a boot straight away. She was dragged into the bushes, where she was left for a time before being moved. A woman called Leanne was in prison with Jodie and she made a statement about a necklace she saw Jodie wearing that she'd smuggled into prison. Leanne said it was similar to one Sarah was wearing in pictures in the newspaper. Leanne wrote in her statement, Jodie turned around and said, They can't charge me because they'll never find the body. I said, What do you mean they'll never find the body? Jodie said, It has been put into a dumpster. I said, who did it with you, Jode? She said, these three blokes. I said, do I know them? Jodie wouldn't answer the question. Laurie Rance had a problem with Leanne's assertions. One of the girls said, later on when she was in jail, in Fairley, after it, she was wearing a, a necklace that was similar to the necklace or the same as the necklace that Sarah was wearing in a picture that was in the paper. Well... I've got all the, all the articles there and you can just barely make out she's wearing a really narrow chain and she had a, something significant on the bottom of it but um, hanging from it. But in the pictures in the newspaper, you can't see what she's wearing at all except you can just see that like a, a really fine gold chain. But it wasn't mentioned while I was running the task force down there but then again, as I said, this was later on when Jodie was back in jail. So she got rid of everything so she could get more heroin and she wouldn't keep an item of jewellery like that for 12 months. That could implicate her. You wouldn't, well, you wouldn't think. And another question Laurie had with Leanne's story is that if Jodie did have three men helping her, then why was Sarah dragged into the bushes? The thing that strikes me, if Jodie's there with one or two males, why would Sarah need to be dragged why wouldn't they just both pick her up and carry her and, and dump her and then go back and pick up the other stuff? But, but one person, I would say, one person's dragged her onto that grass, so along the bitumen, over that little the road part where the, you can drive down, so past the car, over that, up over the... and then either dropped her or dumped on that grass verge area. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't someone quick grab her ankles or pick her up or get her out of here really quick and you could throw her in the bush? and then grab her stuff. And why grab her stuff? Why not just go through, get a credit card, a cash, a jewellery? So among these ex-prisoners and drug users and their associates, the police had to reconcile their stories with the coolness of whoever took Sarah. Someone who could inflict injuries severe enough to cause significant blood loss in the car park. Someone who could drag her into the bushes someone who could ignore Sarah's car as a means of moving her, someone who could slip in and out and escape detection, someone who knew the area well enough 
to conceal her so effectively. But then again, how far do you want to drive around Frankston at night time with a body in the car, be it alive or dead? It's hard to, to actually think what some people would do. Some people are cool, cold-hearted, collected. They, they look at these things very clinically. They wouldn't worry about it. Uh, others would, would panic. But I would say that with Sarah's disappearance, there's an element of patience, of being collected and understanding what the situation would be to leave her body there for such amount of time to work out how to transport her away, whether it be in a car or whether you've got, you know, two or three friends to help pick her up and carry her somewhere. But I would say more than likely in a car because if she had been picked up and carried somewhere, we would have found blood, a trail of blood leading away. The story changed with each telling. Jodie talked about stabbing and bashing Sarah. She told some that she was with one guy, two guys or three guys. Sarah was put in a dumpster or buried. Along with Jodie's ever-changing narrative, there was another consideration. By this time, a $50,000 reward had been announced. For some detectives, Jodie's stories began to jar. There was something about Jodie Jones that didn't sit right. Even Peter and Sheila McDermott could see it in their conversations with detectives. Cole, Clark and Jeff Randall, we were down in Frankston CRB within a couple of months of Sarah disappearing, and they said that they were both, they both, they were both ex-homicide themselves, and they said, we know everybody makes mistakes, even homicide, but they had been through all of Jody Jones' associates and they'd been round the story and through it. And they, as they said, they were all, most of them are drug addicts. And with the promise of $50,000 reward in those days, somebody, if it was just purely Jody Jones and a few drug addicts, somebody would have shopped them for that money. But they... We don't really, we're not sure that that is the right track. And what worried them, and they were quite blunt, they said what worries us is that in 20 or 30 years' time, you still won't know what's happened, that Sarah's even been buried in somebody's backyard and nobody will ever find out. A lot of detectives I've interviewed over the years have given me the speech about tunnel vision. I'm guessing it's in the detective's handbook. You can't afford to have tunnel vision, they say, because it can blind you to other suspects. But often I will then hear about an investigation that has hints of what seems to the amateur to be a bit like, well, tunnel vision. The Jodie Jones angle seemed to take up most of the investigative focus. Detectives from the Frankston CIB who had been seconded to help the Homicide Squad investigators, felt a bit torn. What about other suspects? Cole Clark describes what it was like for them. Laurie Ratz, our detective inspector, he always wanted to have uh, Jeff and I pushing in another direction and looking at other suspects. There was other people that had committed offences at the railway station, there was a rape that had happened a couple of years prior, happened at the Candlock Railway Station. We, we didn't get to talk to that known offender, 
until much later. So, and there was a lot of other people that, and suspects that we, we the local, we had knowledge of other people that hung around the railway station and stole cars and committed offences. Well, we didn't get to speak to them until a while, uh, while later. But it's understandable that when you've got someone running around confessing to it, that you put all your resources into that straight away. But and that's why Jeff and myself, after the homicide squad, back went back to Melbourne. Jeff and I continued on the investigation, and Laurie was pushing for that. And and we did. We we then continued, and there was other people that needed to be spoken to, and which we did. So, but for some among the ranks of detectives working the case, Jody Jones was a good suspect. She was a drug addict, therefore likely to mug someone. She had killed before, so therefore she could do it again. Laurie Rance knew she had to be pursued, but perhaps not at the cost of casting a wider net. So in those early stages, and even in the latter stages of the investigation, where people were saying that without any other information, you've got to go with Jodie because she's saying she was there, her stories were just so all over the place. They changed all the time and I wasn't convinced. Others, others were more convinced, <laughs> I suppose. False confessions are more common than one might think. This case had several, mostly young men trying to big-note themselves until their boasts were reported to police and they sat quivering on the other side of an interview table. Laurie Rance explains how police handle confessions. What you do when people confess to it or confess to somebody else is try to eliminate them. That's the the quickest way, rather than try to implicate them, try to eliminate them. Even so, the Homicide Squad seemed to do the best they could to link Sarah's disappearance to Jodie Jones. By 1990, Jodie's rap sheet was long. She'd had 17 court appearances for 45 offences, including convictions for street offences, drugs, prostitution, burglary, and of course manslaughter. She'd served her time in prison and was granted pre-release in August 1989 after serving seven years. Her parole was revoked two months later and she was released again in February 1990. After Sarah's disappearance in July, she again breached her parole and was jailed. Perhaps the police thought it was best to put her where they could find her. The police set about interviewing all the friends of Jodie they could find. Many were ex-prisoners, some were drug addicts. Most were savvy to the way the world worked. They knew the system and they weren't scared of police. This presented its own set of problems. Laurie Rance explains. And, and the other thing in relation to a lot of those people, they're not scared of the police. They, they know what, what the police can do and, and how they're going to act. They're more frightened of what their colleagues, their friends will think about them being spoken to by the police and whether they're you know, telling the police too much or telling the police what's going on and they don't want to be seen as being, they call it a lagger or a dog. So getting information out of them is fairly difficult, but it can be done. But they're an interesting and difficult type of person to deal with. 
particularly if they're scared of Jodie and what Jodie might do if she finds out they've been... So they don't want to go back to jail, there's all this... Did you feel that they were scared of Jodie? Yeah, I think Jodie was a, a person who wasn't afraid of violence, that was used to violence. So how old would she have been in, in 1990? About 25, and I'd say in those 25 years she'd seen more than any of us had seen in a lifetime and had committed violence and had violence committed on her. Three weeks after Sarah disappeared, the state government offered a $50,000 reward. The offering of such rewards is designed to work as an incentive for people to come forward. But unfortunately, many people connected to Jodie Jones had drug habits. Offering a cash reward brought a lot of nefarious characters out of the woodwork. Not only that, dobbing on arrival in the drug world is a good way to get them off the scene. Detective Cole Clark talks about the complexities of receiving such information. There is information that, that does come in too from these people there where they, they want to fix someone else a drug dealer, they want to be able to give information that they were involved to get them off the street so they can take over their business and it's it's a, a crap world they live in, these drug addicts, so, and it's hard to distinguish what's true and what's not. On the 9th of December 1990, six months after Sarah was taken, a woman called Lorraine came forward. Because of the nature of her information, I'm going to use her first name only and have a voice actor read parts of her statement. I am a drug user and I am using about two and a half grams of heroin per day. I had my last hit at midday today when I used one gram of heroin. I have been using heroin for approximately four to five months. I went to jail in March 1988 and was released in October 89. I was at Fairley with several other girls, one of whom was Jodie Jones. I also went to K Division at Pentridge for about seven months with Jodie Jones. I met Jodie Jones at the Cannonook Railway Station one night. I do not know the day or date, but I do know that it was the night that Sarah McDermott went missing. I have been into the city for something or other that I do not recall. I got off the train around 10pm and walked up the ramp to the overpass. I saw Jodie Jones at the bottom of the stairs to the car park. She was with two males whom I had not seen before. They were Australian and appeared to be in their 30s. I went down the stairs and spoke to Jodie. These two males walked away from Jodie and went and sat down on an embankment along the side of the car park. I spoke to Jodie about general things. I hadn't seen her for a long time. During my conversation, Jodie told me that they were going to roll or mug somebody. I cannot remember her exact words, but I knew that she meant they were going to steal money off someone. I spoke to Jodie until the next train came in from Melbourne. I only noticed about three or four people came down the stairs. It was obvious to me that Jodie had been taking some drugs, probably pills, because she was slurring her words. As the train pulled away, I saw Jodie and these two males follow a girl who was dressed in sporting gear. This girl was walking towards a car parked up the other end of the car park. I watched these people for a while and I saw Jodie and the two males start belting into that girl near the driver's door of the car. I heard a female voice scream as she was being attacked. 
Then I couldn't see any of them for a few seconds and then Jody came screaming out from behind the car and the two males were following her. Jody was hysterical and I ran towards her. I then saw blood on Jody's clothes, just on the front. I do not recall what she was wearing. The two males caught up to Jody and one of them started slapping Jody to the face. I told Jody, calm down, calm down. And one of the males said to me, you'd better fuck off. I then left. I went to the phone box, but it was out of order. I was going to ring a cab, so I went off up the stairs and across the overpass. Jody was screaming, she's dead, she's dead. I walked all the way and went to bed. I have not seen Jody since this happened. It's worth noting here that the phone box wasn't out of order on the night Sarah was taken because the bingo ladies used it to call for their ride home. Lorraine said she told a friend about what she had seen a month earlier, which would have made it November. She said a week after she told the friend, she received a threatening letter telling her to keep her mouth shut or she'd end up headless. She said, I have been agonising over what has happened and have had many sleepless nights. I am telling the police this of my own free will. I have not been threatened, nor has any promise been holed out to me in order to make this statement. I am prepared to assist the police in any way I can. Lorraine might have made a statement of her own free will, but her reasons for helping the police turned out to be financial. By then, there was a $75,000 reward for information leading to the capture and conviction of whoever had taken Sarah. Cole Clark said this is one of the hazards of offering rewards. When there's rewards offered and you're dealing with drug addicts that are desperate for money, a lot of them will give you false reports and on the hope of getting some cash that they can shoot up their arm and and if the information turns out that it's wrong or false, too late, I've had my head, I'm, I'm happy. On the 21st of January 1991, Detective Cole Clark sat opposite Lorraine in a taped interview. It was clear from her responses that she didn't really remember what she had told the detectives the previous December. In the meantime, they had checked out her story. She gave information that she was on the railway station at the time, saw Jodie and the two others assault Sarah and stab her and take off. Well, she made a statement to that effect and then later on, after a few more investigations were done, I found out it was just total lies. She was doing it for the money. It's hard to distinguish what's true and what's not from these people that live in that world, but you certainly don't discount the information that they've given you. You must, and you always do, investigate it to the nth degree, because there may be some truth in what she's what she was saying. So, But later on we found out and proved that that was lies. She couldn't have actually been here at the time. Lorraine's statement and then the retraction of the statement was just another in a long line of false leads in the search for Sarah McDermott. And at the end of the investigation, the police were none the wiser and had no answers for her family. Maybe one of the strongest arguments against Jodie Jones 
is that Sarah's case still hasn't been solved despite a now million-dollar reward. Charlie Bazina says there's no honour among thieves. And you, you would think, and there's no loyalties amongst drug, uh, druggies or thieves or any other criminal sorts, that, that you would have got something over the period of years, you would have got something filtering back that may have involved Jody. The fact that we've got nothing over the period of years or the significant years that we've investigating it either tells you it's either close to one or two people, is that they still around? How, how are they so close or these these criminals? You would think that loyalties change, that, you know, down the track, oh, well, you know, nothing, get it off their conscience, as it were. So you just don't know, but it's just surprising. It just, it's hit a brick wall. As the long investigation into Jodie Jones began, three weeks after Sarah went missing, one Melbourne newspaper ran an article with the headline, A Cop With A Mission. The article focused on Laurie Rads and his search for Sarah. It said that the detectives had worked 15-hour days ever since Sarah was taken, only managing three or four hours sleep each night. Laurie pleaded with the public to come forward if they had even the smallest piece of information. In a haunting finish to the article, Laurie hoped that by September school holidays, they would have reached a successful conclusion. He said, My main goal is to find Sarah one way or another. I've promised the McDermott's I will do that. I think they need to be put out of their agony. I don't want them waking up every day for the rest of their lives wondering where their daughter is. Of course, no one knew that Laurie's worst-case scenario would come to pass. Coming up in the next episode of Searching for Sarah McDermott. Well, when I do get out, you'll be one of the first people I look for. And I said, why is that? And he said, because I just like to kill you. You know, you wouldn't have to do much. We could just meet up at Cannonook Railway Station and take it from there.